Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class. Our gracious Father in heaven, we again are so thankful that we can come and share and, and, and study and, and worship and adore you. We pray that your spirit will enlighten us, transform us, and prepare us to meet you. And may you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Right, we're doing Lesson 9 in the uh, quarterly uh, Present Truth in Deuteronomy, and the title is Turning Hearts. And the memory verse is uh, Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. What does that mean to you? All your heart. All it means it's very important to you. Very important to you. Okay. The whole body experience, is your, your life is tied into all of it. Oh, I like that whole body experience. You're right. So in modern words, we might say, with all your mind and all your being. You know, remember God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul in the uh, King James, but the modern translation is living being. So when you seek him with all your soul, you're seeking with your entire being. All your heart, your affections, your desires, your, the inner workings and longings of your being. Why won't we find God if we don't seek him with all our heart and soul? Is he hiding? We might be distracted. Distraction. Other thoughts? Something else is more important in your life than him. There you go. It's simply how reality works. You reap what you sow. It's reality. If you take apple seeds and label them pumpkin seeds and you plant them, will you get pumpkins? <laughs> no. No. Uh, if you study the Bible and go and or go to church and join a church organization so that you can get approval, uh, get a job, get contracts for your business, are you going to find God doing that? No. But you're going to church and you're studying your Bible and you joined a, a weekly Bible study group. So God is making the point right here in the very beginning of the Bible that the motive of the heart is what matters. It's always the motive of the heart. God is differentiating design laws from rule keeping. It's always been this way. Sunday's lesson focuses our attention on the Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew expert, so I don't know how you pronounce this properly, but miyitin, uh, which has uh, the meaning of a wish, a desire, a hope, a longing that someone really badly wants. And it uh, asks us to read uh, Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. And then in the sixth paragraph, it says, Here is the Lord, the Creator, the one who made space, time, and matter. Sounds like, yeah. Uh, the one who spoke all our world into existence, the one who breathed into Adam the breath of life, uttering a phrase generally associated with the weaknesses and limitations of humanity. What an example of the reality of free will. Here we see that there are limits to what God can do in the midst of the great controversy. Thus, uh, this use of mayitin reveals that even God can't trample on free will. For the moment he did it would no longer be free. This is well said. Really good points in this paragraph. First, God is the creator of all reality, and as such, his laws are the laws uh, that uh, reality operate upon. God is sovereign, 
But depending on what law lens you look through, it means different things. If you have the Roman view of the world and laws are made up rules that are enforced, then sovereignty means that God makes things happen the way he wants them. If you have design law, then you realize God controls all the things that God controls, which are himself and his laws, one of which is the law of liberty. So he maintains and sustains liberty because love only exists in an atmosphere of you take away liberty, you destroy love, you incite rebellion, or you make robots. And so God sustains this atmosphere of liberty. If he were to override a mind or a heart by using his immense and infinite power to bring about a change the person themselves did not want, choose, or desire, he has the power and ability to do that. But if he did it, he would destroy the individuality of the person and they would not be the person. They'd either be a robot or erased and a new innocent being like, say, Adam and Eden, who hadn't developed any thinking for themselves yet, haven't thought through anything, haven't developed a sense of right and wrong. They just have a new set of uh, abilities that they haven't exercised yet. God could do that. But the person that was there before, it's gone. The only way to keep the person is by our willful participation against sustaining liberty. So the only way to God to achieve his goals in our salvation is winning us to trust him. In trust, we choose him. We actively participate in the process of our own transformation. Some people get uncomfortable. They think I'm now advocating a system of works. I'm not advocating a system of works. We don't work to save ourselves. Can a human being be saved without God? Can God save any human being without their participation? So, understand this transformation, though. The truth does not come from us. The new heart and right spirit does not come from us. The law of God that is written upon the heart does not come from us. The perfect sinless character that develops within us does not come from us. The power to overcome temptation does not come from us. The love that motivates and casts out the fear does not come from us. What comes from us? Choosing. Choosing to trust. It's our choice. That's what comes from us. And then the exercise of the will. And then to exercise the will to surrender the self to, to Christ and then exercise the will to choose what God has shown, but then the power comes from God. The enlightenment comes from God. The desire for something better comes from God. All good things come from God. Pardon? All good things come from God. All good things come from Yes. Does the power come after we've made the choice? Yes. The power to succeed does not come until you choose with your heart and mind. Many people pray for the power, the victory, but they actually haven't made the choice yet. Uh, many addicts do this. They, they pray for the freedom from the addiction, but they still in their heart are choosing the addiction. 
they don't want. They, they want freedom from the consequences, what they're really paying, paying for. They want freedom from the pain. They want freedom from the cancer. They want freedom from the financial ruin. They want freedom from the consequence, but they want to still the pleasure of the addiction. Tim? Yes. What happens when you make a choice to whatever that thing is you want to do that's within God's will, that is God's will, and in the morning and throughout the day by evening... Um, you don't. You don't do that. So what happens, meaning, in, re- in regard to what? Neurobiologically, relationally, characterologically, spiritually? What do you mean? What happens? Okay. So what do you think spiritual means? If I spend my time with God during the day, make this choice, mm-hmm. make these choices, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the day, I think I know where you're getting. Because at the end of the day, when I fail, it's not that I've lost my relationship. It's what? That I've just... Hold that question because we're going to come to it. Hopefully, well, maybe I... Should I jump to the end of the lesson? Hmm. Let me finish a couple of points. I haven't done it all year yet, so... Yeah. Romans 7. Get the remedy out. Read Romans 7 in the remedy. That, that's what you... Seriously, read Romans 7 in the remedy. It will answer your question. Uh, that's, that's where the lesson will eventually get to. So are you saying at the end of the day your heart has decided it no longer wants to be on the Lord's side? Not on the Lord's side, no. That's... Have your heart decided you prefer to be in rebellion against the Lord? No, 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 no. So what are you actually saying happens at the end of the day? I failed. You failed what? That failed. failed to get 2 plus 2 equals 4 correct. You put 7. <laughs> What'd you fail? They'll say I lost my temper. Okay, I, and so and so you lost your temper because your heart really. So, so your heart valued hurting others more than loving them. That's what you're saying happened at that moment. I I really really hate that person. I want to hurt them, and I don't want to be like Jesus anymore. Is that what was happening? No. So has your heart changed? No. no. So what what happened? The things that I want to do are not the things I do, and the things I sometimes do are not the things I want to do. Wow. What's going on? Spiritual muscles. What's going on is you've got conditioned responses. Uh, you have neurobiologic wired in habit patterns. You have fatigue of the neurobiology, where impulses and reflexive responses will sometimes occur that your true self, your heart, your converted spiritual person doesn't want to do anymore. And that's what's happening. And that's why we all the directions for healthy Christian living are designed to minimize the, um, the undermining of the effective, successful living. So if you're sleep-deprived, you're much more likely to be snappy than if you get good sleep. If you're intoxicated, much more likely to be snappy. If you're hungry. If you're hungry. Oh, I'm hungry. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I'm going to snap at somebody. Okay. Yes. Mostly, we, re- we regret the results of our choices. We really would like to keep on making the choices. We just don't want those results. Sometimes that's, that's correct. But some, sometimes, Romans 7, you actually see just the opposite. It's not the results that they're really... Um, they're, they're, they're distraught in Romans 7 with the actual process happening with them. They want to be free. Who will free me from this body of death? So, so sometimes what I hear her saying, it's not that she's, it's the result she just went, she actually wants to be free of the process. 
Okay, but you're correct. I think that particularly um, in, in the early part of the um, conversion experience, it's much more. Or even the unconverted who who want uh, who and we'll get that that in the lesson too. Boy, good questions. Really good questions, everyone. So what is coming from us? Our choosing, choose to trust God, to say yes to Him and no to temptation, and to place our lives, our hearts, our fortunes, our families, our futures. In God's hands, like Joseph and Daniel and Paul and all the great leaders, rather than always trying to angle and control. And making the choice of faith, we enter in a real union, a real union, a relational union with our creator, the creator, who, and in that union is the transformation. So God, so God is the creator. His laws are the design laws. Liberty is a requirement for our healing and restoration. We must choose God. And if God cannot trample our free will and achieve his goal, which he can't because we'd be robots or just erased, if that's the case, then do you see how this truth alone, stated right here in the lesson, exposes the entire fraud of the penal legal religious system? The entire penal legal theology is on this truth alone. If you understand an, uh, the reality of transformation and the law of liberty, you can reject the entire penal legal theology. Yep. It's a lie. Because the entire penal legal theology always teaches that at some point in the future, God takes liberty and coerces at some point in the future. Oh, it will all be done judicially and properly for sure, and there'll be evidence and proper testimony, and no one will be falsely convicted, but at the end of the day, God will use his power to kill you if you don't love him. It's a lie. There has to be better explanations, and of course we have those better explanations, but it raises great questions. And the questions, if God cannot get love trust, loyalty, heart transformation through law. Why did he use so much law? And how does God bring an end to sin and sinners without violating the freedom of the sinner? These are the two big questions. Only design laws answers them. Anything in a human law construct always fails to answer these questions. But once you're under design law, laws of health stuff, it becomes very simple, very straightforward, and the Bible has a beautiful constancy to it. But I'll let you uh, take those two. Those are two big questions, and you should continue to, to process them. Last paragraph states, and just as we humans are free to sin, we are also free to choose the Lord and to choose to be open to his leading, to choose by responding to his spirit, to repent from our sins and follow him. Ultimately, the choice is ours and ours alone. And it is a choice that we have, have to make day by day, moment by moment. If the choice is ours, which it is, and the benefits of choosing God are so incredible... Uh, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered the heart of man. Uh, it's an infinite benefit, beyond counting benefit, 
And, and choosing against God is, is, a, is pain, suffering, and eternal loss. If it's so clearly diametrically beneficial to choose God, why do so many people not choose God? Really, process that for a moment. Do we agree? It's, it's, it's just, it's not, well, you know, sometimes it's good to choose God and sometimes it's not. Is, is there ever a time it's not good to choose God? It's always good, and the benefits are immeasurable. It's always bad. So why do so many choose against God? Yes. Which God? Okay, first point. You had a comment. Okay, if the whole Bible can be summed up with, are you going to trust me? There's a lot of people that have trust issues for any number of things that each of us have been through, bad marriages, being coerced, being controlled. And, and if that's our picture of God, it would be hard to trust God. So first thing, then, lies about God. Yeah. Yeah. That undermine trust. This is why so many people don't trust him. And the two big lies that are the most, in my view, common in the world that keep people from choosing God are the historic <laughs> imperial lie God's law is like human law, and therefore God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering, and God needs some nudge to him, a blood payment of a human sacrifice to pay him off so he won't kill us. This historic human view that comes through all different groups and societies. And if that's your view of God, then you look at the Bible and you read, he's killing and he's murdering and he's abusing and he's just maniacal. And this is what some people see when they see God. And who would want to, who would want to realize? He's just like, no, I reject that. That's one view. The other big lie is there is no God. Evolutionism. We just evolved. So why would you choose God if your belief system is there's no God anyway? Only, only um, you know, superstitious people even think there's a God. Enlightened people know better. So these, two, these are the two biggest lies that keep people from choosing God. But it's not just that. What else keeps people? Feelings. Oh, go ahead. Selfishness. You want immediate pleasure rather than looking for something in the future or intangible to a certain extent. Instant gratification. They want something now. They don't want to look to the future. So feelings. Uh, or, or you guys are really describing what I call the pain of what reality requires for us to choose God. There is pain in the process of healing. Once there is brokenness, there are no pain-free options. And some people base their decisions on the pleasure principle. What feels good or what feels best or what hurts least in this moment? I see them in my practice all the time. Their entire lives are predicated on what will make me feel better right now. I got a cavity. So I actually ask this to my patients. If you had a cavity and you were in bad pain and you went to the dentist, what would you want the dentist to do for you? And you will, you'll have two, two answers, two general answers. One, I want him to fill the cavity. I want to fix it. I want pain medicine. This is very diagnostic of the mindset of people. There are people who have uh, serious problems in their relationships, in their own ego structure, and they spend their entire life looking for the various medications that will make them feel better, not for the interventions that will cause them to get better. And they're stuck. This is what you guys are describing. Because coming to Christ, the Bible uses a metaphor. Crucifixion of the self or the carnal nature. 
We die to the old life and we rise again to a new life, but that is a painful process that some are not willing to go through. So that's another obstacle. Another obstacle is the feelings, feelings of guilt, shame, fear, which will cause people to sometimes feel hopeless. They're a sinner beyond help. I'm, I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin. There's no hope for me. Uh, uh, he would never have me. This type of uh, uh, feeling. Uh, destroyed faculties. Uh, destroyed faculties. Persistence in sin sears the conscience, hardens the heart, and some people persist in rebellious living so long that they actually destroy within themselves the faculties that respond to the spirit of truth and love, and no amount of truth or love has any help uh, impact on them anymore. Misplaced trust is another one. You're talking about difficulty trusting. Misplaced trust. Trusting the wrong people. Trusting others to tell you the answer. I know people um, from a Mormon background. And some people in that circle trust the prophet. There's a living prophet in the Mormon system. Some people in the Catholic trust the pope or the priest. Trusting someone else to tell you. Remember this quote? I, I, you, I've shared it many, many times. I'll share it again. Second Testimony 129. If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here is the great danger of many in, and you can fill in the blank, many in where. They have not an experience for themselves. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment questions and subjects that are new and never liable to arise. They wait to see what others will think. If these dissent, that is all that's needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is no account whatever. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as babes walking by others' light, living as on others' experience, feeling as others feel, acting as others act. They act as if they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those who they think are right. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last days. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they don't know that it's he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or a friend is approaching. They are not spiritual. Therefore, spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which relate to the kingdom of God. Neither young nor old are excusable in trusting another to have an experience for them. I love this quote. Yeah, how appropriate. Do you know why I love this quote? Because it describes reality so clearly. What is the problem with the people here described? They have never learned to think for themselves. And they have never learned to trust Jesus for themselves. They put their trust in someone else. Not in Jesus. Get your mind around that. 
their trust in their pastor, their pope, their general conference, their 27 fundamental belief system. See how old I am? should be 28, I know. (laughs) This is why they all fail. Their trust is misplaced. A third of the angels in heaven fell because they trusted Lucifer. Rather than examining the evidence for themselves and coming to a conclusion based on the evidence of what God revealed. And this is what's happening in the world today, right now, around us, the whole COVID thing. People are being faced with decisions, personal decisions, decisions over their own health and their family, deciding how do we choose? Who do we trust? What method of discernment do we use? What motive do we apply? Love or fear? What is the motive? Any finite, and get your mind right, I'm about to tell you, any finite being in an actual, real, saving relationship with God can still listen to bad advice and make choices that are not only not best, not what God would have them do, and not lose their salvation for it. It just diminishes their ability to fulfill God's cause. It hurts them. It injures them to do it. I'll give you an example. Remember Paul? Taking advice from church leaders to do a Jewish ritual cleansing. If you read in the book Acts of the Apostles on page 404, that author says that the advice of the church leaders stemmed from cowardice and was contrary to the gospel and was, uh, and was not consistent with the message Paul had been teaching. Paul did not lose his salvation for doing the ritual, listening to that advice. He lost his freedom, had his ministry shortened, and his life shortened. We each have the responsibility before God to make choices in governance of ourselves to fulfill the duty God has put upon each one of us. Not to listen to other human counselors to tell us. Now, let me be very clear. Let me clarify what I just said. It is wisdom to get input from others that you then prayerfully process through your own discernment and judgment and make your own choice. It is foolishness to surrender the choice to others. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. All through the Bible we find evidence of God's foreknowledge that he, that is, he knows before all, he knows beforehand all that will happen. Whether the rise and fall of world empires or individual actions just hours before they occur, assuredly I say unto you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, Jesus speaking to Peter. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. His foreknowledge, even of our free choices, has no bearing whatsoever on the freedom of those choices. I think it's a great example of Jesus saying to Peter, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. It's a, it's a brilliant, it's a very precise, measurable um, statement of something before it happens that he knew. It's a great example of God having foreknowledge. Who made the choice? 
did, did, did um, some compelling power come over Peter from God that for the next 12 hours of Peter's life, he's kind of robotically walking through because Jesus said it now, I'm required to do this, and, and his freedoms were taken away to fulfill the prophecy? Is this what, what happened? Or is Peter completely free? Who made the choice to deny him three times? Peter did. So this is a great example of God having foreknowledge. Yes, uh, Linda. But Jesus warned Peter and the others, but particularly Peter, that Satan has asked to sift you, sift you and you need to be prayed. And so he was warned ahead of time that he was a, in, under direct assault by Satan himself. Yep, yep. But that warning is different than the prediction of actual choices. I'm warning you, I, we could warn, I could warn all of you. Satan is wanting to get all of you. He's sifting all of you. He wants everyone. I can make that warning. I think it's true, isn't it? Okay. But that's different than me saying, but uh, I want you all to know by tomorrow morning, you're going to throw uh, uh, your spatula at your husband three times. Okay. Uh, that's a quite different prediction, isn't it? Yeah, and actually having made it, uh, I, I bet you would go home and say, get rid of all the spatulas. Uh, Jennings is not going to be right on this one. <laughs> Because he realized that Jesus knew what he was going to do and told him, and when you, when you turn, you know, feed my sheep and so on, he realized that God loved him, though he even knew he was going to, do, to deny him like that. So, examples of foreknowledge. Ju- Judas betraying him. The one who dips his hand in here is going to betray me. There's another example. Um, the casting of lots for his clothing predicted hundreds of years uh, beforehand uh, by David in the Psalms. They were going to take his clothes and cast lots for him. The crucifixion itself, that he would die via crucifixion on the tree rather than being stoned to death, which is, which is what the uh, law um, uh, prescribed for blasphemy and what they did to Stephen. They stoned Stephen under Roman rule. Uh, but, but they foreknew that they would choose the crucifixion route rather than the stoning route. Cyrus releasing the Jews uh, to return to Jerusalem, uh, building only one ark instead of a fleet, and knowing there were only eight people, as one, one would be sufficient. Um, many examples of God's foreknowledge. And then this quote out of Patriarchs and Prophets 43. He that rules in the heavens is the one who sees the end from the beginning, the one before whom the mysteries of the past and the future are alike outspread. I love that quote. God is the creator of all reality, including time. God is not subject to time. Time is subject to God. Everybody get get your mind around that. Time answers to God. He can have the sun stand still. He can have a person in vision for hours not breathing. Somehow their physiology suspends itself in time in some way we can't figure. He controls time. He's not subject to time. He lives outside of our linear existence. We live in a linear existence. He doesn't live. He is an infinite being outside of what we call time. But some genuinely sincere people who love God and want to represent God in the best possible light have real difficulty with this truth. They just can't get their mind around it, and they can't understand how God can know the future and our future choices before we make them, and we're still free to make them. 
And the way they conceive of things, if that were to be true, uh, in their mind, we're no longer free. God, God has programmed us. We're somehow predestined. And so they go down a trail that God knows all the possible choices. He's an infinite calculator. He can calculate all the possibilities. So he knows under the realm of possibility, but not certainty. So that's why the Psalms read that one possibility is they may cast lots for your clothing. No, they actually don't read one possibility. They actually said they were going to do it. Or Jesus said to Peter, um, it is possible that you might deny me three times tonight. No, he didn't say it's possible. He said you're going to. These prophecies are never couched in possibilities and probabilities. Knowing the future is not causality. And that's what people confuse. Knowing the future doesn't cause it anymore. Get your mind around this. Remember the statement to God, the past and the future are alike outspread any more than knowing the past is causality. When you read in scripture that Moses took the rod and struck the rod and struck the rock, you know that his history, that choice, does your knowledge of that choice cause it? Knowing is not causing Yes. Scripture very clearly tells us that God changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So even though he knows our bad choices before they happen, it doesn't change how he deals with us. He still loves us. He still woos us to make a good choice. He changes not. That's right. Another way to comprehend this idea is that what informs God, who lives outside of time, of our future choices, what gives him that data, that information, is when we make that choice in the future. Our making the choice is what informs him that we made the choice. If we don't make that choice, he doesn't have that information, or he has the information we chose differently. Our choices are what inform him. He just lives in all points in time simultaneously. He's, he's there with us in the future when we make the choice. But he's also here with us now. If you can get your mind around that instead. What would you say about God if God didn't live outside of time, if he was subject to time and didn't know any more about the future than we do? Is this the openness of God theory? Yes. Yeah, open theism. Fourth paragraph states, notice that in Deuteronomy 4.25, Moses is clear that it won't happen immediately. After all that they had just experienced, they weren't likely to fall into idolatry right away. However, over time, after generations or so, uh, the tendency to forget what the Lord had uh, done for them and what he had warned them against would lead them to do exactly what he warned against. What causes people to forget lessons from history? They're called to remember what the Lord had done. Well, other things taking the place of that. They, they are the doer, and so we're now focused on this, and we lose focus on other things. So that would be lack of education. Lack of being educated about the history because you're busy with other stuff. Or lack of interest. Okay. A rewriting of history. Propaganda. <laughs> Propaganda. Purposeful misinformation to, to rewrite the narrative. Or painful and unflattering lessons from history that one doesn't want to look at. So they deny or avoid history. 
So the lessons that God wanted to remember and never forget, oh, and he wanted to go over and over again, God is love and God is trustworthy. God doesn't need to be persuaded to be on their side. God's laws are design laws, not rule-keeping. There are no other gods. There's only one. True worship is living God's law in how we treat others. That's true worship. Salvation is healing of hearts and minds, not legal adjustment. These are the lessons they went over over and over again. Are we still struggling to remember these same truths today? Says God's amazing grace in the fifth paragraph, even after they fall, God, God's grace is amazing. Even after they fall into horrific evil of idolatry, even after they have received the due consequence of their sins, if they turn to the Lord, he will forgive them and restore them. In short, if they freely choose to repent, he will accept their repentance. What would be the only reason God would not restore them? Thank you. Very straightforward. The only reason he won't restore anyone is if we refuse to let him restore us. That's the only reason. But what about forgiving them? What comes first? God's forgiveness or our repentance? You all said forgiveness. I love that answer because I I agree with you. What is it that leads us to repentance according to Romans 2.4? The kindness or the goodness of God leads us to repentance. So, do we believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? He gave his only begotten son. Or do we believe that God was so angry and frustrated and wrathful at the world that Jesus had to sneak out of heaven in order to come down here and pay a blood price to the Father to propitiate his wrath? I'm being a little facetious, just a little. (laughs) Well, this is how it's taught. Wasn't it a joint decision between the two of them? Because God was in the Father reconciling the world to himself? Yes. God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare us some, but gave him up. How will he not along with him give us all things? God is always for us. Always. God is never against us. The entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are perfectly united, uh, expending every resource at their, at their infinite selves for our salvation. There is nothing that comes from God that obstructs our salvation. There is nothing that comes from God that condemns us. Condemnation comes from sin and the accuser. That's reality. Tuesday's lesson. Uh, First paragraph says, All through the book of Deuteronomy, the key theme appears, Obey the Lord and be blessed. Disobey and you will suffer the consequences. It is no different in the New Testament. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he, he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Talking about obedience and disobedience. Uh... Is there more than one type of obedience? Paul, in the New Testament, in his writings, contrasts two types of obedience. Constantly contrasts two types. What are the two types, if you had to label them? How would you label the two types of obedience that Paul contrasts? Willing and forced. Willing and forced, okay. Duty and love. That's not the language Paul uses, but you're right. Um, Duty and love. 
Okay, you're getting closer to the language Paul uses, but you're right. You're both right. He uses the language of the obedience of law and the obedience of faith. But you're both right, describing the same thing in different ways. So what's the obedience that springs from law, and how is that different than the obedience that springs from faith? Can you make a distinction from the obedience that springs from law and the obedience that springs from faith by the behavior, by the deed, by the act? Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, food choices, Bible reading, doctrinal beliefs of creation, the inspiration of Scripture, the state of the dead. Can you do all of that from either one of those, about the uh, the, uh, obedience of of law or the obedience of faith? Can you do that? Yes. It reminds me of my mom talking about doing it because I love you or doing it because you forced me. And my mom used to call the forced one malicious obedience. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I think of when I think of the one under the law. So, so, so would malicious obedience or obedience under law have a different impact on the heart, mind, and character of the obedient than the same action coming from love, faith, and trust? Yes. So this is out of Christ Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he's required to do so will never enter the joy of obedience. He does not obey. Hold on. What do you mean he does not obey? The man's paying a faithful tithe. We can bring the treasurer of the church in and check his math. It's a a 10% tithe right there. There's his check stub. There's his check for the church. It's tithe, 10%. He's paying it. What do you mean he's not obeying? He doesn't do any work on Sabbath. His business is closed. His TV's off before sunset. He eats only the approved foods. What do you mean this guy's not obeying? She clearly doesn't understand obedience. Why is rule keeping not actual obedience, even if you keep the right rules and do the right behaviors? You're doing it for the wrong reason. Your heart may not be in it. True obedience comes from the heart. Oh, let's keep going then. You guys are so right. This is continuing the quote. When when the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across the human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is an outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This leads us to do right because the rules say so. No, it leads us to do right because it is right. Because right doing pleases God. What does God want? He wants to change the heart. He wants our love, our loyalty, our friendship, our understanding, our devotion. And God cannot get this by rule enforcement. And we cannot give it by rule keeping. The imposed law system creates a religious group of rebels (laughs) that will kill the Son of God to keep the rule about the Sabbath. Get him off by sunset. Then listen to this one. It's out of uh, Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully and in the love of God, it is a mere mechanical performance. If dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace and quietude to the soul. 
True obedience is when the heart is transformed to love God and others, and then the behaviors are driven by the motives of love. What drives the motive of a lawkeeper? What's the motive that drives their behavior? Fear. Fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness. So level one and two, fear of punishment or pursuing a, a reward. They will keep the law to get the benefit. Pay my tithe so I can get more money. God will pay me more. I'm promised. There's a promise. I'll claim the promise. That's level one and two of moral development. Fear of rejection or desire for acceptance. Level three, moral development. I'll comply so I won't get rejected. Fear of legal trouble or a desire for legal security. Level four, law and order. What drives the, that's the obedience, levels one through four of the law keeping group. Fear and selfishness. What drives the obedience of the mature is love, uh, of faith, as Paul taught, would be love for God and others. Level five, you do what's right because you love God and you want to honor him. That's level five. Level six, you not only love God, but now you're becoming an understanding friend and you understand his uh, purposes, excuse me, understand the principles and, and design laws of God. And, and level seven, you're an understanding friend and uh, participate willfully, lovingly, with a heart's desire to fulfill God's purpose in your life. So what about our faith? Does our faith have levels of obedience, genuine faith, that has a different impact on the heart and mind? For instance, is there childlike faith that's genuine, it's real, but it's an immature faith? And then is there a mature faith that actually understands reality differently? So, for instance, could a person with a mature faith and a person with immature faith, and both of them had genuine faith in God, come to exactly the opposite conclusions about the behaviors that they are supposed to carry out, both with genuine faith. So, for instance, could a childlike faith lead a person not to eat food offered to idols for fear that those idols might have power over them? And could a mature faith recognize that the idols are nothing but stone and wood and they have no impact on the food at all, so they can eat anything they want? Exact opposite behaviors both from genuine faith, seeking to honor God with their spirit temples. Can you, are you with me? It's Romans 14, if anybody wants a reference for that. And now do you see there's a gap in behavior? Yes or no? Yes. From genuine faith? Yes. And you see the, the devil steps in the gap. Satan steps in those gaps. And Satan will begin to whisper in the ears to judge your neighbor. He's eating food off the idols. He's probably under the influence of those idols. And he's, and he's a special guest speaker this weekend. <laughs> we better not listen. We better spread the word that they're bringing in an outside speaker who ate food offered to idols. We better not listen to him. Even though his name's Paul, the apostle, he ate, those food. He ate that food. We know better. We know the, that, that, that we have faith, and our faith is real. Or... Those people, they're so primitive. They're so childish in their thinking. They're just level one, level two, whatever. They're babies. They don't understand. They have rule-keeping still. They have good faith, but they're still just rule-keeping. And do you see the divisions that come? And the problem isn't actually the food offered to the idols, eating or not eating. 
The problem is the bitterness and resentment and conflict and hostility against your brother. Judge not that ye be not judged. We have no place to judge another man's faith. Do you see this happening in Christianity? See, I, I'm, I can talk about that all day because I'm talking about food off the idols, which nobody has any experience with. When was the last time you went to the supermarket and were really had to make a thought, can I buy that food? Was it offered to an idol? <laughs> you guys never have that thought. It's never a temptation, never an issue. So I can talk about this all day and you all say, praise the Lord. What, 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 what great truths you're speaking. <laughs> but what happens when I talk about Sabbath keeping? This is where, you, where the devil steps in the Adventist church constantly. The weak faith and the mature faith on what you do in Sabbath. The same Romans 14 says one, one man esteems one day and, uh, and one man esteems another. And some, some esteem all the same. Same exact passage. But in Adventism, it's constant. Can we do this? Can we do that? You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't. Did you realize? You know what? We better, we better, we better shut down. Don't, don't do that. No. Constant. We have no ability to judge somebody else's heart and their faith. It's not our responsibility. If you're under conviction not to eat food offered to idols, then Paul and the Scripture tells you not to. Not because there's a problem with the food. There'll be a problem with your mind if you go against your conscience. And then Jesus said in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends. Because servants don't understand their master's business. And I've made everything, everything the Father's made known to me, I've shared with you, basically, is what it says. Not an exact quote. Difference between a servant and a friend? Is there a difference between friendly service and a serving friend? So many Christians are happy being servants. The, the, the Greek is actually slaves. Hey, I, I don't want to get it wrong. I want to be loyal. I want to do it right. So you tell me what to do, Lord. I, I just want to do what you say. God said it. I believe that's settled. I won't think about it. I won't ask questions. If you tell me, I'll do it because I'm going to obey. Just like the slave. Just like the slave. How would you like a child like that? So your child goes off to college, some boarding school, maybe here in Tennessee where they get a lot of rain. And one day, that weather forecast, they wake up early, they call home, say, Mom, Dad, we're supposed to get heavy rain today. I'm not sure. Should I wear a, should I wear a, a slicker or should I, I use an umbrella today? Um, I, I, which is best? I, I don't want to make a mistake. You tell me. Whichever you tell me to do, I'll do because I'm going to be an obedient child. Or should I just go without either? Just get wet. What would be the right thing to do today, Mom? Dad, would you be proud of that child? No. <laughs> How many Christians approach the Christian journey this way? I have no clue. I have no clue, Lord. I have no idea. I have no idea why it's better to, to, to do X or Y or Z. I, I don't even care to know. I just want to obey what you tell me. That's all I want. Yes? Where does this analogy fit in with, with pastors that I know of, that I love, and they're, they're good, but they're not, they don't accept design law, even tell people... Well, I would have to tell you to rephrase your question because you're asking me to judge somebody. How does this stand with pastors? I don't know how it stands with pastors. 
I'm not going to, I have no idea the motive of those pastors. Those pastors might be very sincerely motivated and misinformed. They might have been told things about me that are completely untrue, just like the person who says, I don't believe in Jesus because Jesus kills babies. Oh, okay, well, I don't believe in that Jesus either. So I can't judge the motive of the pastors that you're talking about. I would just tell you if, if uh, you know, there are principles involved. The, the lovers of truth are not afraid to have their positions investigated. Truth loses nothing by investigation. Uh, we don't seek to silence other people. Uh, we don't seek to tell you not to listen or read to other people. Follow the truth. Once you've settled, there's certain things you can be settled on. And once you're settled, you don't have to waste time uh, uh, with 400 different people arguing the same point once you've settled the point. You can be settled in a position that God is not the author of confusion. You can be settled in the position that God is not the source of pain, suffering, and death. You can settle it. And then if you have somebody arguing that he is, you don't have to waste your time with it. Yes? Is it possible that it is God's will that you eat food offered to idols, but it's God's will that I not? Is that possible? Sure. God can. Is it possible? Yeah, think about the examples in Scripture. Is it possible that God could tell one person to go sacrifice his son on a uh, on an altar? Most of us would probably immediately say, you can't be being led from God. If you think God gave you that message, you're wrong. It must be the devil giving you that message. Yes, Wendell. Before we leave, I'd just like to speak to the point on Thursday, end of Thursday's lesson about offending God. I don't think we offend God. I think sin offends Him, but He loves His children. And I don't think we offend God. Alrighty. I'll think about that, Wendell. So, in... in uh So that friendship is an understanding agreement with Jesus. We not only love him, a friend actually understands what the friend wants to accomplish and willfully, intelligently participates and wants to grow and understand more. Doesn't want to just follow and, and not be informed. They want to actually, and you see that in the Old Testament. The two friends, Moses and Abraham, had, you might even say, arguments with God. Not in a rebellious way, in a friendship way. We care about your reputation. We care about what you're trying to do. Consider this quote. This is out of Review and Herald, uh, March 8, 1887. All whom God has blessed with reasoning powers are to become intellectual Christians. So if you don't have reasoning powers, you're excused. <laughs> it's true. It's true. No, there's a true statement. Some people don't have reasoning powers. They really don't. They can love, but they can't reason. Truly. Think about some of the people who have various brain defects. They, they, I, I, I had an aunt. My aunt's deceased. In the, in, the, in the nomenclature of the day, she was called mentally retarded. She could not reason her way through a systematic theology textbook or even the basic things, but she could love. And she could be loyal. And she could be honest. Okay? But she wasn't going to be an intellectual Christian. She was not going to win a debate. Continuing on. All who, who God has blessed with reasoning powers to become intellectual Christians, they are not requested to believe without evidence. God does not request you believe without evidence. What? Isn't faith believing without evidence? 
No, it is not. That is the lie from the enemy. All, God is a source of truth. All truth, all evidence leads back to God, exposes the issues in the great controversy. Satan has no truth on his side. No evidence rightly understood in its context supports Satan's claims. None of it. Therefore, he creates theories that make you feel pious and virtuous and righteous that turn off thinking, inquiry, and reasoning. There are no, they are not requested to believe without evidence. Therefore, Jesus has enjoined upon all to search the scriptures. Let the ingenious inquirer, the one who would know true, for himself what is truth, exert his mental powers to search out the truth as it is in Jesus. What laws are involved here? Law of exertion, you're exercising your abilities. The law of sowing and reaping. The law of worship, by beholding we become changed. The law of truth, truth dispels lies and sets us free. These are design laws. It's how reality works. Any neglect here is at the peril of the soul. Why? Well, because he, he, he told you you should study. Uh, and, and if you don't study, you don't get your little gold star in your record book. No. What's the plan of salvation designed to accomplish? Change Healing hearts and minds. Can that happen without your willful and active participation? But what if we believe because we really trust a nice pastor and we've memorized the 28 fundamentals and they're all doctrinally sound and that's why we believe? Where is your trust? In God or the pastor? In God or the church? We must know individually the prescribed conditions of entering into eternal life. We cannot allow these questions to be settled for us by another's mind or another's judgment. We cannot trust the salvation of our souls to ministers, to idle tradition, to human authorities, or to pretensions. The Lord positively demands of every Christian an intelligent knowledge of the Scriptures. Why can we not trust the salvation of our souls to our church leaders? Well, Satan names with them directly. I mean, if you're a leader, Satan's going to like double down on you. If you're at the height of a mountain, you're going to get the worst. So you're saying because they're Satan's agents. <laughs> no, I'm saying because <laughs> Satan really tries to get them to be his agents. Okay. So what you said is not a false premise that Satan does target church leaders. That's a true premise. But that's not the reason why. It's more basic than that. We're human. It's more basic. It's basic. It's very basic, folks. Design law stuff. Why can we not trust the salvation of our souls to church leaders? The process of salvation is one that requires your active participation. You must wrestle out the truth. You must surrender your heart to God. You must trust Jesus with your life. You must face the fear, temptation, guilt, shame, and overcome it through your love, trust, faith relationship. So ministers or teachers like myself can't, and friends and family can function like a trainer or a coach, but they cannot exercise for you. They cannot exercise your faith. They cannot make your choices. They cannot do your thinking. I can explain it to you. I can't understand it for you. We can't build someone else's character. You must think for yourself, reason for yourself, choose for yourself in order for you to be transformed. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white like snow. That's probably a good place to pause.
Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the beauty of your character, the truth of your word, the the revelation of Jesus Christ and the salvation through him. We ask that your spirit will be poured out into our hearts and minds, not only enlighten us, not only convict us of our duty, but, but as we make the choice for you, empower us to walk successfully in the, in the avenues that you have directed for our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen.